All right, guys, thank you for being here. I know we got Amy and Charles to start off the uh, segment, and uh, hopefully a couple more people will jump in. Uh, I just mentioned off camera that I hope Dr. Souders, our medical director, jumps in because uh, this is a this is a topic that she works with quite a bit, not only in her medical practice, but in collaboration with Dr. Hanscom, uh, David Hanscom, who is a I would say retired orthopedic spine surgeon, but who's now turned his attention to this exact topic. And he has a couple of platforms. Uh, one is called Back in Control. You can go to backincontrol.com and you would see his app, which is called the DOC, D-O-C, which stands for Direct Your Own Care, uh, DOC Journey. And it's all because he saw as a surgeon uh, a couple things that were very meaningful to him. One is in the literature, as he was doing disc replacements, disc fusions, all kinds of, of spinal work, that the outcomes in research seem to be long-term really no better than having no intervention. So about the same amount of people, whether he performed surgery or not, or at large, the entire profession, it just didn't seem to matter that much. And then he started doing more psychological profiling of his patients, and he found just an exorbitant amount, an increasing amount through his career of stated anxiety, even using anxiety survey scores and assessments. And he would begin talking to his patients about that. You know, do you think there's a link? Is there something with anxiety and your pain? Can we can we kind of parse those things apart? And one of the questions that I know he has discussed that was profound to him, you have all of this pain because of your spine, your neck or your low back. You have these radiculopathies, different types of pain, and you have this anxiety that you're describing to me. If we could take one away, what would be better? What would make your life better? He said to a person, everybody always said the anxiety. If you could take away that, I'll live with the physical pain. So it really kind of snapped his head into this uh, this new world of looking at the the interrelationship of anxiety and physical health. And one of his main points, as he works with patients now with anxiety, is that you you see most of the world attuned to the model that anxiety is a psychological issue. If you're anxious, you see a counselor, you see a mental health therapist. And he likes to say it's a physiological threat response, and he's right. And so if we ignore the physiology, if we ignore what's happening in the body, we're just going to miss it. And you can do what's called talk therapy. You can go to a counselor, a therapist, and uh, that can be helpful. But he said in his experience, both personally and professionally, and he himself personally knows 20 physicians who have committed suicide. And he said, you know, therapy alone was not the issue. It, there are these physiological threat responses happening and that cements it into our, our perception more than anything. When we go down that path of physically, biologically, uh, allowing chronic anxiety to, to come into our lives and, and basically control our thoughts, in rumination and catastrophizing and so forth, there just is no escape. You have to address some of the physiology. Now, I, who also has some personal experience with this and some academic experience, I would say it's it's almost not the right path to separate those two things. 
because they just ping off of each other uh, just incessantly. So you, we we get a thought because we we do have to have some kind of perception that then creates anxiety. We we perceive something that is a threat, and then the physiology cascades take us down that path, and then we can't escape it. Then the thought processes are entrapped in that physiology. So I would almost, if I had to disagree, I would say it does have to start with a thought because you have to have something online consciously to make that threat perception, then the physiology takes over. But I completely understand his point. So what I want to do today, because we're, you're going to see this as a topic we cannot exhaust. I want to try to look at where those two things intersect, the psychology and the physiology. And of course, we're going to bring it down to what does that mean for our goals with fat loss, with, with, with health in general, uh, specifically physical health. We had a long series on inflammation in the body and chronic low-grade inflammation in the body is also a physiological and psychological phenomenon, you know, very, very intertwined. But the physiology is where we cause disease, we cause early death, we cause all kinds of trauma that we may not even be aware of. So uh, let me first start out with a definition, as we often do. Uh, first of all, this is from our last research review. We did an entire one on cognitive distortion. But I want to show you <clears throat> that anxiety is an underlying element of, of almost all cognitive distortions. I said last week when we were discussing this topic that if you just look at them all, uh, at least like uh, you know the top 10 or so, uh, there's just this this current of negativity. Like you are you are expecting bad things to happen. You magnify that. You catastrophize. You you increase negativity bias. All of these things. And I would say anxiety is also part of that. It's you know these are all just almost almost two sides of the same coin. So a cognitive distortion is an is, is an exaggerated or irrational thought pattern involved in the onset or perpetuation of psychopathological states, such as depression and anxiety. Then we went on to describe what schemas are and negativity and so forth. But let's let's talk about why anxiety is a distortion. I, I would like anybody listening on the playback, uh, you guys who are here, to to think of the moments where you have felt anxiety. I also want you to think of a person in your life, somebody you know, that you think may be the most anxious, because I want you to, I want you to see that it's easier to recognize in other people, of course, but I think we also know when it's, it's creating some problems in our lives. So I'm going to, I'm going to end up talking about state versus trait. And matter of fact, I may have this next slide. Uh, First of all, before I get to state versus trait, this is another thing we talked about last week as an undergirding of cognitive distortion. If we did not have the need cognitively to compare ourselves to other things, we wouldn't distort reality. We wouldn't distort our perceptions. The same thing goes hand in hand with anxiety. If I didn't know or think what I should, and remember the, the should statements are one of the top 10 cognitive distortions, I should do this, I should be doing more, I should be achieving this, I should not feel this way, I should feel this way, uh, I should be getting more sleep, I should be losing weight faster, compared to what? Like, wh what's the gold standard? What's the plumb line? This is all very, very normal. Remember in my 
academics and social psychology and social science, the, the very first chapter of social psychology textbooks is always this, you know, social comparison, the just world theory, looking at cultural relevance and where we fit into culture. It's all a labeling and a hierarchy. So one of the things we're going to come back to, especially near the end, is the fact that if we weren't so worried about the shoulds, if we weren't so worried about comparing ourselves to others or to these hypothetical standards, the anxiety comes down quickly. And that's that's a very important first step. So social comparison, social psychology in general. But let's let's look at this state versus trait phenomena. If you have been around our research reviews, this has come up in research in the past, especially when we've looked at things like the study of happiness, the study of contentment, personality psychology, things like that. It, it is exactly what it sounds like, state versus trait. My, If I have a trait for anxiety, then it's me. It's just, it's how my brain is wired. Perhaps it's environmental conditioning. It could be a resultant of adverse childhood experiences. I mean, there are all kinds of reasons that get a person to a point where you could say as a trait, they are quote grateful, you know, or it's a it's a state. It's uh it's the context. It's in this position. I feel this way, but it's not what I would say. It's my normal temperamental standard. So the same thing happens with anxiety, and we're going to talk about this from. I, I pulled up a bunch of studies on this, and a lot of them weren't as helpful as I thought they would be, or I wanted them to be. But just a general understanding of anxiety, I think, is important because it's going to make a lot of sense how we relate it to weight loss and health pursuit and so forth. But state and trait. Let's get into some of this. So, again, it's the person versus the situation. I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story of a five-year-old Joe Klumzeski. Um, In my book that I wrote on parenting and fatherhood, I, I discuss this because I use personality psychology as the container or the platform for the book. And uh, it, it's funny to me now, uh, but it's also funny because 50 years later, there are some parallels that are just there. It's a total trait. My The first day of kindergarten, the night before I got totally dressed for school, and because, you know, tomorrow morning's my first day of school and five-year-old Joe Klumzeski just felt like, hmm, you know, there I, I was feeling something, you know, and it was, of course, anxiety because I'm I'm nervous about this. I don't know what to expect. There is some level of fear there. So I'm afraid, like, what if I'm late? I'm afraid of this. I'm afraid of that. What if what if I can't find my shoes? What if I can't find my book bag? And so I'm already going through what may be called irrational fears, uh, especially at five years old. And so I literally got totally dressed, even with my shoes. And I laid on top of my covers because I didn't want my covers to wrinkle my clothes. So I go to bed just, just like this. And I had my book bag already filled up, leaning right up against my bed. So it's just right down there within hand's reach. And that's how I went to sleep the night before my first day of kindergarten to this day. And I did not think of this until I was preparing this PowerPoint today. Um, When I get home tonight from work, I will take a shower. I will shave. I do all that at night. I don't do it in the morning. Um, 
I set out my clothes for the next day. Like when I go into the shower, I literally get my clothes out for the next day and I put them in the bathroom. So they're there. And at night, my, my work book bag is right to the left, leaning up against the bed, exactly where it was when I was five years old, getting ready for kindergarten. Nothing has changed in 50 fucking years. That's trait versus state. However, in those 50 years, I have received some counseling and some mental health therapy from, um, you know, professionals related to anxiety, because at some point in my life, I started feeling some physical ramifications of that. I started getting, um, yeah, I was losing sleep. I was just, I was, I was sensationalizing or catastrophizing some things that were rational fears or disruptions in my psychology like they were real things to deal with but i was inflating them i was i was fueling them because of my thoughts and so you know it, it was never anything horrible i was not suicidal or anything like that i mean many more people i'm sure have worse experiences but that's that's what i mean by trait that's something that's always going to be there and i simply had to learn to manage that because of a trait state is again, those circumstances, anybody can feel anxious, anybody can feel, uh, you know, a, a magnified, you know, state of, of, of anxiety, because of things that are normal in their lives, there's just trauma, grief, things like that. But here's what I want to explain culturally. We live in a time where sociologists and anthropologists and psychologists can measure mass movement. When, when we as a culture, we as a global uh, society or species uh, find ourselves in some kind of new status with, with new technology, new things, cell phones, social media, we can measure that. We can see that all of these people are having all these problems. The pandemic is a great example. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more because everybody is seeing that anxiety is becoming a worse problem. And my contention, and I think a lot of experts, is it doesn't have to be. It's understandable. It makes sense why we're there. But we have to learn how to deal with this or we're all going to suffer needlessly. So with anxiety specifically, this comes from that study that I, I posted the uh, title of here. You know, you have state and trait contexts. So the state is something happens and I have that normal cognitive response. I'm filtering it. I'm thinking about it. I'm processing it. And I'm, 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 I'm having some worry. It's, it's taking up space in my brain. And then I will have an autonomic emotional response. My limbic system, uh, hormonally, things are going to happen. You're going to get adrenaline, cortisol, all of that stuff. And so that can be that acute state. But if I'm already uh, uh, somebody who kind of suffers with a trait of being anxiety-based, I'm going to immediately process that through different filters. I'm going to I'm going to start feeling it maybe more intensely than other people. So you're going to see everybody have different responses to this. So keep it in the context of yourself and perhaps, you know, where, where you need to go with this as far as trying to mediate some of the things that, that you may be worrying about. So here's, here's the irony is in the 20th century, People like Albert Camus and other psychologists labeled the 20th century as the age of anxiety. And as I said in my post, um, gee, I wonder what they would think if they were in the 21st century now. Because going back to state versus trait, the person in the situation, uh, 
I have described this this way. The advent of social media is akin to putting 8 billion rats in a shoebox and thinking everything's going to come out okay. And the fact that we used to be able to disengage, you went to work, you went to school, maybe had some, you know, bosses you didn't like, some kids, peers, like things like that, but you got to go home and get away from it. Everybody kind of watched the same three channels of TV, if you were even talking about the 20th century, and we, we came back to work the next day, your weekends off, that kind of thing. Today, we do not relinquish that connection, at least unless we're training ourselves to do so. So uh, I, I heard somebody, I'm trying to think of what it was, just, just yesterday, um, I was watching a podcast. Uh, no, I'm sorry. It was it was uh, Dr. Souders and I. Uh, we were in this this group of physicians and psychologists and researchers uh, talking about this topic, and the, the person presenting made this very offhanded comment. He was a a medical doctor, I think, a a physiatrist, and it was just a very kind of you know passing statement. And it was you just you you know when, when you have more social cues, more more people doing more things space is being occupied i'm paraphrasing um but you just you know you're just getting more people competing for more resources and there's just more friction more tension of course there's going to be more anxiety of course there's going to be more social ill and you know then he went on with whatever he was talking about and and i thought that statement is is probably a little bit too overlooked in our culture because to disengage ourselves from that sometimes uh, it, it's kind of in vogue right now for people in this space to talk about dopamine fasts to get yourself away from stimulation and so forth. But going all the way back to, you know, two and a half, three and a half thousand years ago, people were already talking about anxiety and in, in our relationship to perception, how different people can go through the same context and one person is reacting one way and one person is not. So, so keep this in mind that the kind of anxiety that we're describing, you're always going to have reasons for that, as we're going to talk about here next. Uh, you, you're always going to have biological responses, but the power we give it is, is ours to control. So as always, I first want to root this in the biology, what's happening. As I quoted from Dr. Hanscom, anxiety being physiology-based, being threat perception, again, slight disagreement that you first have to perceive it. It is a psychological interpretive phenomena. Then the physiology takes over, but the amygdala in our brain is, you know, gets, gets kind of all the credit for fear response and threat response and that sort of thing. It's really connected to the hippocampus, the thalamus, the hypothalamus, the brainstem, very old primitive rudimentary part of our, our brain. But as we look more at the current and better view of how the brain works, which is more of a global workspace. You see those connections between neurons. You see entire copies of our of our memories in different neurons, not even just the hippocampus and so forth. So think of this as not just the amygdala, like you may hear on podcasts and so forth, but an entire sequence of, of happenings. Uh, I, I think even Dr. Goldman, who wrote Social Intelligence and Emotional Intelligence, you know, kind of has it right that these things are, are subsensory. You get these perceptions and those threat responses are happening a fraction of a second before you even are aware that they're happening. They are very sensory. They are very physiological. So, so why is this important? 
What, what, how, how are we overexcited when we get these threat stimulations? Um, I guess I just kind of explained that. So it, it, again, it's an interesting time where we are now compared to where we were 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 200,000 years ago, 3 million years ago, 7 million years ago. You go all the way back to even the first multicellular organisms that had any kind of neuronal paneling, so to speak, on even just their their endothelium and 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 could could move around even with intent or with sensational reactivity. Anything that you can show that has some kind of survival mechanism, it's it's entirely based on threat perception. Every single organism alive has one job: stay alive. If you can accomplish that, you can go on to higher level functioning. And so we are 1000% built to feel nothing but anxiety. That's exactly what we should be feeling. Every second of the day, we should be looking around over our shoulders like, where's the next threat? Because 99% of all organisms that have ever lived have died before they even procreate. 99% of all species that have evolved are now extinct. And so it's very, very odd for us in just a couple hundred thousand years to have achieved the top of the food chain where I can lock my door at night and I don't have to worry about a tiger or a coyote coming to eat me. I can turn on my tap and get clean water. I don't have to worry about hookworms in infecting me and killing me. I don't even have to worry about mosquitoes biting me in Indiana, at least right now, and giving me malaria. I just don't have all these survival threats all day long, but our brains are still wired for those. And so the threats we do have are pinging some of those still primitive evolutionary mechanisms. So as Neil deGrasse Tyson likes to say, everything in the universe is trying to kill you. Every single thing that could consume you for your resources, your carbon, your nitrogen, they would do it in a heartbeat. Um, part of why the 20th century was so anxiety-based. Um, another another story for another day. But when we think about these things, we now have, go back to the beginning of what I was discussing, the most stimuli-intense environment we've ever had. We just don't turn it off. We can't escape it. We're getting it 24-7 if we allow it. And now those brain mechanisms are there to make us feel that anxiety. And so I'm not going to get into all of this too deeply because you can go to other social psychology experts and there's so much chatter out there, so many podcasts about, you know, why social media, why 24-hour news cycles, why all of this stuff is so harmful to us right now. You just literally have to create boundaries and turn those things off. Uh, I have even had clients of mine whose physicians have told them, you have to fucking turn off Fox News. You have to stop listening to right, 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 right wing radio. Like I've had clients tell me that because all of that as a, a media type, and I'm not just going to say left versus right, but um, that kind of media that is all based on creating revenue dollars by clicks and views is just geared. Their incentive is to sensationalize everything. Absolutely every single thumbnail you see in a video is to draw you in because it wants to scare you into thinking, I need this information. This is important to me.
you just have to be willing to turn that off. You have to be willing to give yourself boundaries with that kind of thing. We could even get into relationships and work environments and things like that. We, we, we can talk about those peripheries. But when you look at what's happening in the body, and this is where I wanted to land today. What does this have to do with our health? What does it have to do with our uh, pursuit of, of fat loss and body composition management? The, these types of responses that we get, if, if you remember, you know, think back to that five-year-old me. The night before my first day of kindergarten, when I was feeling so much anxiety that I had to get dressed, even sleep in my shoes because I didn't want to miss my shoes, slept on top of the covers. I was I was risking being cold because I just didn't want to wrinkle my clothes. My book bag had to be packed up, zipped up and right like like right beside my bed. So I couldn't miss that. Like what kind of trait anxiety do you think I would exhibit in the future when I encounter even more stimuli? 24 seven stimuli, more pressure because of more responsibility. I mean, those are the kind of things that you can see converge into a true physiological change. So very quickly, as I have told you the story, you know, I was already taking stress management courses in college. I was, you know, reading books on self-help and so forth. Uh, anyway, you start to feel these things because of that sympathetic nervous system activation. You're getting those cortisol and adrenaline dumps. Uh, vasoconstriction is happening, hypertension. Your physiology has permanent change, just like your psychology in our brains. What, what fires together, wires together neuronally. When, when you get so used to being in that hype, hyper sympathetic state, vasoconstriction, your liver's dumping out glycogen, uh, your body fat cells are are liberating triglycerides for energy, and you're you're in this massive state of fight or flight, and then you start to come down and you have to re-metabolize those things, and then you feel this rebound hunger, uh, stress, everything about that state in those vacillations is you going back and forth between the, the state of tension, which takes mental resources. So now you get deep, deep fatigue, inability to focus and concentrate. And we know that the fatigable resources of our will, our willpower are important for diet and so forth. And, and then all of a sudden you're getting that rebound hunger because you it's, it's almost like your body has just run a marathon. And you get those massive swings in blood blood sugar elevation, and then and decreases because you're you're redistributing that, you're restoring it. There is so much that goes into that, and I want to tie it to our discussion on inflammation, because that low grade chronic inflammation we talked about just from the state of being overweight, and the cytokines and the chemokines that are part of our our adipose system. Uh, very, very similarly, when we wire our brains to accept that hypervigilance and catastrophizing and ruminating and repetitive, unpleasant thoughts, when that becomes our norm, our brain just stays there. We're always going to be uh, on the edge of everything being a threat. And, and I ask you guys to think of somebody that you know who is perhaps the uh, most stricken person with anxiety. I'm guessing you could think of somebody who is truly just always on edge. Everything sends them off. 
Uh, everything is, you know, it, it's the road rage. You know, somebody's just instead of that assumption that, wow, they must be in a hurry because something's wrong. I hope they get there safely. It's, you know, you're screaming at them, you're cussing at them. And that's that kind of just on edge, um, you know, physiology that keeps us there. There are a lot of things that I'm going to, I'm just going to kind of skip over. I, I mentioned them in terms of how it affects fat loss and so forth. We can talk about those deeper, but I think there's something more important because in the example I keep using of dominoes, and if you think of all of the things that can affect our success as a line of dominoes, and when one thing falls and then the whole chain goes, we have a couple things to consider. One is how can I keep those dominoes in place? And I mean, every, every little detail of your success, am I getting enough sleep? Um, do I, did I do my meal prep? Am, am I in, am I constructing my environment appropriately? Am I getting the exercise I need? Am I doing this? Are my relationships and all that just happy and stable? So I'm content and at ease there and on down, am I getting enough carbohydrates? Am I doing this? Am I doing that? If one of those things starts to fall, you will see a lot of things fall at the same time. Anxiety, I think is one of the first, if not the first domino. Because if you are constantly under siege, if your brain is always on battle with, with perceived threat, these other things are going to be falling all day long. I mean, you just can't control them. And in that state of hypervigilance, it's hard to rebound. If, if it's one of the other things I just mentioned that are much more practical, less esoteric, you can kind of, you can kind of shore that up. Okay, I didn't have time to do that. I'll do that tomorrow. No problem. Good. If you're in a state of anxiety, you can't make that decision because everything is a catastrophe. So anxiety is an ambigu ambiguous construct because it can be conceptualized in many ways. Uh, R.B. Lewis, 1970, defined anxiety as an emotional state with a subjectively experienced quality of fear as a closely related emotion. Lewis points out that the emotion is unpleasant, negative, out of proportion, uh, to the threat is future directed and involves both subjective aspects and manifest boldly disturbances. Anxiety has been defined as a trait, a state, a stimulus, a response, a drive, and a motive. So again, all those things. <clears throat> and as I started this out, the reason I wanted to pin this on the back of our cognitive distortion workshop is all those cognitive distortions are magnified by anxiety. I think they're driven by them. And as, as Aubrey Lewis said here, it's, it's a stimulus and a response. It's, it just rolls like a snowball downhill. But let's, uh, let's open this up to some discussion. Uh, as I said, that hardwiring for threats is still there. It's still part of our physiology. The context switching and the stimuli are, are greater than ever. Uh, we're just going to constantly be able to perceive more anxiety if we allow ourselves. And those those remedial primitive evolutionary uh, mechanisms will just continue to overplay those responses because our brain can't tell the difference between real and perceived. Our brain just the, the, the same response you get as if a grizzly bear were charging at you across a parking lot as the same as what you get when you see that social media post that triggers you or something like that. You're going to have that same response unless you learn how to deal with it. So the irony, as I said, here we are in 2023 with far less than ever to fear. And yet these distortions are making us deal with them worse. 
the the level of anxiety we're feeling collectively as a species is just a massive threat. Some people are saying it's 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 as epidemic as anything. So I won't go back through these cognitive distortions we went through them last week, but again, I just wanted you to know that that that's why I'm connecting these two things. So so one final thought on on how this impacts our fat loss. I I, I already described this, but I want to point it out in the slide here. That fight or flight physiological response, the energy liberation that our liver and our adipose tissue is going through, the chronic low-grade inflammation, the central nervous system and mental fatigue, uh, all of that puts your brain in a state where it wants to soothe itself. Your brain is an organ that is doing all kinds of work without you knowing it before you're even, even aware of the physiological response you're having. The way your brain soothes anxiety and that that post-anxiety response is partly with food. You your body wants to resupply those energy stores that you just spent. Because again, perceived versus real, your body just went through this threat response driven by your brain. And now your brain wants to refuel for the next response. You will have chronically increased hunger and a lot of instability in those cravings if you are in a higher state of anxiety. Those two things are completely correlated. And so that self-soothing psychologically and that physiological need to dampen cortisol with insulin and glucose, that's a real thing. That's where we get back to, is it all about the food or not about the food? This is just about physiology. This is the biology. You can't, you can't psychologically... Uh, ignore that physiology. You just can't. You have to address it on the physiology side first. Makes the psychology much much better. All right. Let me uh, let me get out of this screen share. And Amy and Charles, if you guys have any questions, that'd be fantastic. I know Dr. Souders, who uh, is is an expert on this topic, you know, might have some great ways to to shore up some of the things I described. But uh, any any first thoughts, Jen? Well, first, apologies for coming in late. I was in a continuing medical education class and it it ran over. Um, one of the things, and I like I said, I didn't, I didn't get all your topics, but um, you talked about our, you know, the, the fight for our attention by basically every corporation in the world. So our attention is what's for sale. Um, and it made me think to a large extent um, how... This isn't it isn't just that, but but just technology in general has really helped to amplify our cognitive distortions. Think back. You're old enough like I am to remember when you used to just have to like if you wanted to play with your friends, you either had to go over to their house and knock on the door, see if they're home or you had to pick up a telephone. You had to call them and there was no answering machine. You didn't leave a message. Uh, They were either home and they answered the phone and you talked to them or they answered the phone and they weren't home or you know, or you just didn't, you didn't hear back, but you didn't think that was because they know that it's you calling, right? And they don't like you. Um, so, so now with everything, um, the way even a simple thing like a phone call is, um, it just sets us up for amplification of these cognitive distortions, like the, you know, the mind reading or the fortune telling or the, you know, all these sort of self-deprivating comments, because we, ex- we, we expect quick responses. We know that they know who's, you know, 
who's getting a contact. And if someone doesn't return it, and then we can start creating these stories in our heads. And so it comes at, at such an early level in technological development. I mean, I cannot remember being anxious about college term papers. Um, like if my if I ran out of typewriter ribbon or it broke or something, I mean, I could handwrite a paper and turn it in. But now, you know, if like if you're a kid trying to do your homework and you can't upload it, well, now it's not just did I do good on my homework, but now I'm going to be late for my assignment and consequences and blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, there's just so much more threat stuff kind of just built into what's become the norm. Uh, I have to even laugh at myself because the other night, maybe two nights ago, um, I had a software update for my phone and um, it was one of those emergency things for, for some kind of, whoa, what was that? Celebration on, on your end. I don't know. Is that a, is that a thing? I don't know. That was funny. Huh. That was weird. I did not do that. Not, not intentionally. You're I don't talking know. about your software update and. Your- yeah, software update. I guess my computer is happy because it worked. But anyway, um, so it, you know, I, I couldn't pair my phone with my computer and I had to do it um, without doing that. And then I couldn't pair it afterwards and I couldn't back it up. And I mean, it, it finally it all worked out. But in the interim, I had sweat pouring down my face. I could feel sweat coming down my armpits, down the back of my neck down my shirt. I mean, it was ridiculous. The stress response just because, man, my shit don't work now. I mean, it's unreal what this has done to us in terms of uh, the threat level because we feel so dependent on this. We're less concerned about clean water, as you said, than we are about our phone work. And it's crazy. Are you, Jen, so I'm I'm that person who... 20 years ago, if I'm trying to build something, a piece of Ikea furniture, and I forgot a part, I did something backwards, like, I would literally feel physical pain, like, oh, my gosh, I just wasted an hour, I'm ready to throw stuff through the window. And because I think I went through some literal anxiety training with a therapist, and now I spend more time trained in a very trained way, if that happened, it happened to me this morning. So I have this big gym timer, Bluetooth, you know, whatever in my in my facility, training facility. And I came in and it was like it was on flashing 12, you know, and I'm like, wow, what happened? And I sat down and like you, like I could not figure this out. And it's Friday morning. I've got things I get, get done. But the old me would have been very frustrated. The me now is like, OK, there's an answer. There's something I'm missing. It's in a settings. Let me make sure I'm reading all the instructions. I just, I just very, very calmly spent the five or 10 minutes it took. And my whole mindset was, I can figure this out. 10 years ago, 20 years ago, my mindset would have been, what's going on? This is broken. Something is wrong. It just, it's going to like, it's going to ruin my day. Like there's just, there is that catastrophizing. And I just feel like, we have to all come to some conclusions that if if our internal dialogues are, okay, not a big deal. This is a thing. Like, I have to deal with this. Can I do it now? Can I do it later? 
how should I prioritize it? But you just, there is an instantaneous grid by which we're going to either buffer it down or to use your word, we're going to amplify it. And I just think we have to go through that process of thinking about this and training our brains, or we will just be a slave to those primitive brain impulses. Yeah. I mean, as soon as I got those physical sensations in the body, before tackling anything, the first thing I did was sit back, take the deep breaths, slow the breathing down, you know, just just decrease the chemicals in the body, just decrease the adrenaline because your brain's offline when you've got that. So that's why you can fly in that rage because you're not, your brain is not receiving in the cognitive parts, the blood flow is diverted into the survival parts. So the first thing that's necessary to do is just recognize this state and then stop it physiologically. Um, and then afterwards, it was absolutely the the things like, okay, you know, this will be figured out. Yeah, and, and and if this doesn't work, then I'll do this, and I, and I can go to the store, and I can get a phone call, a tech service, and this, and that, and I'll just go through the steps, and eventually it'll resolve. This isn't the end of the world, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, you know, it. I think one of the things that is um, so important for people to understand is how uh, how our thoughts, so our, our thoughts come unbidden, right? And our thoughts create more thoughts. And that's how we get these stories. And that's how the stories can devolve into the cognitive distortions. But the thoughts also promote uh, emotional reactions. And those emotional reactions with those thoughts create these physiological states. And the physiological states are the things that are harmful to us that create d disease states and have difficulty with fat loss and all that. So, I mean, the, the, the most important thing initially is to just basically get your physiology under control first, recognize it. Um, and that's why I love having people pay attention to the embodied feelings when they have something that they've identified as an emotion or something. Um, and I, and I like them to pay attention to the good ones as much as the bad ones. Um, because there are times where, you know, anxiety can be turned into excitement, um, or resignation can be turned into serenity. You know, there, there can be, uh, overlap there where, where the physiological manifestation can help you port it into a better mental framework. It's a pretty that's, interesting that, thing. That's actually the research that I saw most aligned with this topic, uh, this week is, a lot, anything, if you just go through PubMed or Google Scholar, anything with anxiety and nutrition, it kind of leads to eating disorders. And it's that, it is that threat response magnification where even when I'm working with a client, if I'm, if I'm looking at food logs and, and this just actually happened this week where I saw with a client who was struggling a little bit, you know, some things like some chocolate chips on the food log and a Dr. Pepper here and a this or a this, and I'm, I'm technically looking for the places where I think we can make better progress or things that may be thwarting our progress. So I asked about those because in my mindset, I'm initially looking for, is that in one of those responses of stress? Like uh, I'm, it's kind of the precursor to a binge. And like you said, in your reaction of, okay, I feel this sensation. I need to step back. And it's the whole, like create the Victor Frankl gap. And, uh, and this particular person, I'm happy to say, was like, no, I just that Dr. Pepper's part of my untracked meal I do once a week. And these were factored in. I just kind of went with that little recipe. And that's how the food tracking app does it. 
But in another context, I see people who, when they do struggle with eating disorders or binge eating or the catastrophication of I need to binge purge, you know, create those bulimic and, and anorexia type behaviors. It's, it's all based on anxiety. It's all based on that, that just complete catastrophizing and ruminating over the should statements and so forth. And, and even myself in a state of posed with a temptation or just a normal hunger cue and it's not when I wanted to eat. It's not what I wanted to eat. If I do what you just described, Jen, and say, okay, let's back away. Let's think this through. Is this real hunger? Can I wait? Whatever. I get some water. I distract myself with doing something else, and it goes away. The hunger literally goes away, but I could have amped that up into some extra anxiety, and it would lead to a binge. But uh, yeah. Charles, looks like you're going to jump in here. Happy to have you. Hey, it's great. It's great to be here. Um, that that was uh, very good. I, I don't even know where to start. There's just so much to uh, impact in this in this topic, and um, I'm, I always, you know, think about it from the context of of some some of my struggles to to hit my goals. And um, one of the things I think about is that you know when you're you know when you're in that that sort of that fight fight or flight or freeze mode, it's um, you're trying, you know, even if it's on a subconscious level, um, it, you're trying to survive, uh, even though there's not, a, even if there's not a real threat and that, that anxiety, there's, um, you know, there's obviously a physical manifest manifestation that comes with it. Um, and I would say, you know, there's, it's obviously very, um, uncomfortable. There's a lot of discomfort, um, I would even call it like sort of like a type of, of pain that comes along with uh, with that anxiety. Um, and in the context of someone who has um, goals to 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 eat better, to um, uh, to to physically or or let's say even get being a calorie deficit, their, their goal is to lose body fat. Right. Um, that can be also very discomfort, you know, um, uncomfortable to, to be in a calorie deficit and operate. So you know, essentially in a situation where you, if you have high anxiety, you're already having this, this discomfort, this pain, and that, and now you're uh, trying to introduce another type of discomfort and pain into the equation, and it, and it becomes very, very difficult um, to achieve, uh, to achieve the outcomes that you're, that you're looking for. And um, Dr. Souders, I think is, is, is spot on. You have to, it's really difficult to make progress on, on your physical goals if you don't address um, those uh, those sort of mental health uh, goals. It, it, it becomes almost uh, unmanageable. At the same time, you know, things like exercise, for example, will help your, <laughs> will help your, uh, your, your mental health and, and, and are very positive uh, in terms of that. So, you know, it's, it's like this, this fluctuation in my mind in terms of going back and forth and, and, I personally have always been the type of you know, guy. It's very easy for me to go to the gym, and a lot of my benefits from the gym are um, relieving stress. It's a stress management. Um, but when it comes down to you know when I get home and it comes down to all right now I have to withhold food um, in order to reap the, the the certain benefits depending on my goal from that physical exercise. That's become that becomes very um, hard to manage when you introduce uh, a high level of, of anxiety uh, to that equation. 
You know what, Charles, you just hit the bullseye that I failed to articulate. So I'm so glad you were here. Um, you, you nailed it when you said this is uncomfortable like that is uncomfortable. So I'm adding one thing to another that are both negative to the person I see succeeding in losing 20 pounds, 30 pounds, 100 pounds. They don't perceive it as uncomfortable. They perceive it as exciting. I'm doing this. I'm look at this progress I've made. I just lost 10 pounds. I just I just crossed the 20 pound mark. I can't wait to hit 30. Like that's what the difference is. They just don't get into that threat physiology. Instead, the contentment and the happiness is more serotonin. It's less cortisol. And and again, it's it's controlling that physiology state starts with the mental state. But that's that's the ball game, honestly. When you're talking about those slim margins where we could either, you know, have a good day or we kind of toss the day, it's you know sometimes it's that little extra hunger we feel because of the anxiety, or the contentment and the serotonin because serotonin is a it's it's a hunger reducer. I mean, it's it literally is. Um, you know, like dopamine and so forth. When you're in love and you're just never even hungry, you you're you're just so happy you don't even feel those other negative sensations. So anyway, you know, consider that. You know, that's that's part of training ourselves to have the expectation that I'm choosing this journey of self improvement. I want it. I'm looking forward to it. How can I practice every day? a mindset of, of gratitude and excitement and happiness instead of deprivation. And, you know, this sucks. It's horrible. I'm so hungry. It, it, it's yeah. so, it's so much mind over matter in that regard. Yeah. And just one other quick follow-up to your, your, um, you know, excellent point um, point there. Uh, and that, I think that's absolutely the, the goal because, you know, the, the individuals who are, who, who have, you know, a lot of weight to, even if you don't have a lot of weight to lose, you know, you just have some goals, you know, you have to, you have to be able to think in a moment about, about the outcomes that you're looking for, for, for yourself. So if you're at a high, very anxious at high anxiety and, you know, you're, you had a long day um, uh, and you, you know, you walk into the kitchen, you know, and your your family's eating pizza, right. But uh, you, you may not think at that moment, at that snap moment that uh, let me not eat that pizza, let me eat something else um, because I have these long-term goals. So um, being mindful and aware enough so that you're thinking more about the long-term outcomes versus what how you're feeling at that particular moment. And that's something you could, you know, people struggle with in many areas of, of life, not just in, uh, in, your, in your health to, to include, you know, going to school and, you know, I have to take this, this test but you don't really get that diploma until, you know, four years later, right? But but the thing that you do now is, is what's going to allow you to achieve that goal four years from now. And so sometimes it can be very difficult for people to think long-term at that moment when they're feeling that high level of, of anxiety. Yeah, and, and we've all been to both. And I'm going to let Amy pick up with, with her comments here. But like, I, I have been in those situations where I didn't eat the pizza and I was fine. I felt great pass up the pizza, go right to the fridge, get my food out and I'm fine. Other times I'm like, wow, I really want that pizza. I'm going to trade that meal for one slice. Like I'm not going to have seven and I, I can make that decision. Uh, and so it's like, you know, it is still there, but uh, it is, it is a moment to moment 
battle sometimes. Go ahead, Amy. Well, I don't have much to add on this topic, but I do think it's it's interesting going back to some of the conversations you and I have had on the app about like hedonic reasons for eating and kind of that hedonic uh, desire that humans have to kind of get pleasure. And I think some of that is like our, we flip the switch from feeling really anxious about something like, what can I do to override this anxiety with something? And, you know, there are people I think who go down the, the realm of depression into like kind of just adding on to the anxiety with with more of the catastrophizing the doomsday like all these other thoughts and then there's the other people who might go hard the other direction of like what type of rewards can i give myself in this moment and like you said both of these paths can ultimately lead to different types of eating disorders one of extreme restriction or the piling on of bad and one of binge eating like the piling on of good and you know those are really human traits in many things not just in diet you know and i think even you know, the, the point I'm at now, like thinking about like reversing and I have like, quote unquote, anxiety about feeling that I will undo progress that I've made and like what that reversing process will look like and trying to remember that, you know, it, it is in the future and I can manage that as it comes and I don't have to be worried about it now, but it is, you know, our minds like to take us places uh, <laughs> sometimes without our consent. They just go. <laughs> I, I swear, I, I keep bringing this up because it's it is my anchor point worldview right now. But the the existential philosophers, as they move from the 17th and 18th century into Albert Camus and Ernest Becker of the 20th century, that concept of, of absurdism that everything we're talking about as diseases of abundance, I can't stop from eating too much. Like, how absurd is that? 99.99% of our species who have perished would have loved to have that extra slice of pizza. Like, it could have made the difference between life and death. And here, I'm spending energy and time and resources trying to self-flagellate myself into losing another five pounds. Like, for my health and my desires, that could be a great goal. But to spend that much time and make it even more anxiety-ridden, that is absurd, which is why they titled that branch of ex existentialism absurdism. And so I just, I just, that's my anchor point. Like I said, I just keep coming. If I'm struggling with anything, all I have to think about is seriously, in the entire scheme of my life, is this a big deal? And it instantly brings the anxiety down. It's like, no, it's not. Just deal with it put it away, walk away from it or not. Just, it's your choice. It's, it's, it's your choice. Nobody's going to make that decision for you. No one's going to do the work for you. Just face it and do it. Yeah. You know, actually, since Amy brought it up, I think it's kind of, I was starting to laugh to myself and I was nodding and smiling. I was like, oh yeah, I feel you. Um, so that incident I had the other night with the, with the phone thing, right. Where I'm pouring off sweat. And I thought, you know, I mean, that was so obvious. I was like, yeah, this is ridiculous. Um, but then afterwards, so I, you know, I calm down the nervous system. I, you know, I do the the breathing. I listen to sounds. I do some meditative type things. And I got my focus back and I'm, I'm addressing the problem. And I just saw that, you know, because I could finally freaking think clearly. And I'm just about done. And the relief is there. And I'm like starving. And I'm... <laughs> And it's 9.45 at night. I thought, okay, there's more absurdity. So there, but this just shows how deep our programming is in terms of our physiology. Our phys that is survival. I mean, that was the roller coaster ride 
the absolute textbook roller coaster ride of survival physiology. You know, huge fight or flight response, huge response to it in terms of, you know, if uh, it actually drove action on my part. It wasn't going to be like I could go to bed and leave this till the morning. Uh, and then when it's all done and you're like, ah, that's like, I'm starving. Um, and I thought, no, I'm not going to do this before I go to bed. I'm going to I'm going to have heartburn all night. I'm going to have reflux. I'm going to sleep poorly. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm just not going to feel better. I don't need it. This is the world of abundance. That's the thing I can take care of in the morning if I need to. Um, but when, then fortunately, my daughter texted me about how to get lime deposits off her shower. So um, that I was I was I was saved. So that this is why I think this kind of sharing of knowledge is is so useful because Jen, if you like the average person may not have known this, but you think, okay, I'm having this massive hunger. Oh, maybe that's that wave of cortisol and my liver just dumped all this glycogen and all this is now being resynthesized. My blood sugar is coming back down. I actually don't need any more calories. This is a temporary sensation happening because of that physiological response. I'm okay. Whereas other people may have been driven to you know, the pantry. Or even worse, like if I knew also that if I listened to that, that the ultimate result would be that I would feel not okay. And other ways, by the way, other ways that our body gets serotonin, not always food, can be drugs, can be other addictive behavior. Like we will find ways to self-soothe, which yeah. is our bodies, our brain's way of trying to distract us and placate us and insulate itself with serotonin so i mean you gotta you're gonna you're gonna make that decision for your brain or you're gonna allow your brain to make it for you yeah and perfect perfect example how was it solved and completely went away like instantly with connection with my daughter with a family member where we're sitting there you know so we're talking on the phone and texting back and forth you know about something silly um but but there was connection and caring and again that's and that you know, that, that is the serotonin aspect. So that re that connection replenished me in a way that food wouldn't. And back to physiology, it was a literal biochemical yeah. response. Yeah, it's perfect. It's it's perfect. It was the perfect like little case study vignette. It was great. Awesome. You guys, you guys are fantastic. I really appreciate you here. This, like I said, I think this is one of the most profound things we can ever understand to help us get further down the track with, with what we want to accomplish, but uh, you have an awesome Friday and rest of your weekend and I'll see you next week.